Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Samuel Johnson once said, questioning is not the mode of conversation among gentlemen. It is assuming a superiority, and it is particularly wrong to question a man concerning himself. There may be parts of his former life which he may not wish to be made known to other persons, or even brought to his own recollection. Of course, Johnson said that to James Boswell, and had Boswell not asked Johnson plenty of questions, Boswell never would have written his life of Samuel Johnson. And so I would be unable to give you that anecdote. My guest today is Dean Nelson, who has written for, among other publications, the New York Times, the Boston Globe, and the San Diego Magazine. A PhD in journalism, he directs the journalism program at Point Loma Nazarene University. He has won several awards from the Society of Professional Journalists for his reporting and has written or co-written 14 books. And today we're talking about his most recent, Talk to Me, How to Ask Better Questions, Get Better Answers, and Interview Anyone Like a Pro. Dean Nelson, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you, Al. This is uh, actually a great pleasure to be on your program. I appreciate your interest. Well, this is not about history. It's not about uh, higher education. It's not about place, which is another sort of preoccupation. Sometimes I have books outside of history just because I'm obsessively interested in the idea of place. But it's about conversation. And I realized, uh, I think, talking right. to Russ Roberts in a previous episode, um, who's the host of Econ Talk, which is a wildly popular uh, program about economics and life, uh, that uh, what I'm doing on this podcast is having conversations and asking people questions. So when I saw a book whose subtitle began, How to Ask Better Questions and Get Better Answers, I thought, I can record you giving me pro tips. So that's what this is. That's this right. is like a This is a recorded coaching session. That's um, right. So you, you can write off this whole time, man. Oh, I write this, off this, I, I, all the time. I, that's <laughs> what I do all the time. Um, I hope no one from the IRS is actually listening. Of course I don't. Of course I don't do that. Just as a business expense. So let's first talk about you. Uh, this book is filled with, even for those of us, it, it's very much directed as a as a journalism, a fun journalism text, it seems to me. Um, it's filled with great stories about you doing reporting and asking questions in the course of doing reporting. The last right. reporting I did was as a stringer for a local paper when I, on summers during high school, uh, college, which was awesome. And it's kind of surprising I didn't get into journalism, but there, it, this tickled some part of me that still remembers doing that. So That's right. yeah, let's talk about <clears throat> back when there were local newspapers. Yeah, um, yeah. When when there was local news, actually, before we do that, let yeah. let me just address uh, the audience that I had in this book. Yeah, started out primarily for journalists and people interested about journalism and and things like that. But it really broadened into, believe it or not, uh, podcasters. Really? Because yeah, I I got to thinking, and this this was some good counsel from my editor as well at uh, Harper Collins, um, where, where she was saying, you know, there are so many professions that 
are are really based on what kind of information they get from the people point. they deal with it's a brilliant whether point. it's uh, whether it's nurses or financial planners yes. Yes. or um, uh, podcasters or uh, HR people mm. or or whatever so she was saying let's just intentionally broaden this thing out so it's not so journalism centric so that people like you, Al, mm. could read it and say, this is going to make me a better podcaster. Well, I, and, did, yeah. I did have one guy who, who does a podcast just on the topic of golf write me and say, I've done 150 podcasts. I read your book. I'm going to completely change how I do uh, podcasting as a result of what I read in your book. So you're on the right track. Yeah. I was after people like you, man. Well, it's 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 funny. The first um, is if you look if anyone looks at uh, the the website for this historicallythinking.org, you'll see that uh, we've got uh, uh, questions about what is historical thinking and uh, a list that a colleague of mine came up with uh, years ago. The first move, as we call them, of historical thinking is asking good questions. Oh, sure. So there was another. There was an, and I, I often say to like the first day of class uh, for history class, which, you know, is I'm teaching U.S. history as a way of uh, as an excuse for teaching historical thinking is the yes. first the first move is to ask good questions. And even if you're pre-med, uh, you're going to ha have to do that for the rest of your life. You're going to have to come right. up with good questions, which will eventually allow you to formulate a thesis statement, which is called right. a diagnosis or hypothesis right. about the problem. Right. Um, well, so the, the, scient is... the scientific method, the historical research method, they start with with questions and and the the, the basis of your answers uh, is all from how good are your questions. So, yeah, yeah, we're we're we're, we're in total agreement there. So let's talk about the Night Stalker story, because that's one oh. of and, and then then we'll move on to Hale Bop. Was it Hale Bob? Yeah. 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 Which, which one do you want to start with? Wow. I mean. Wow. You, you just, you don't want to ease into this, no, do you? you want I want to go right to the big I want, one. I want to go right to the two big. Let's, let's start with Hale Bob. Can you explain what that was? I, I I had forgotten. For some reason, I thought they were in Florida, not San Diego. But you have covered some oh. weird stuff in San Diego. It's like a there are parts of this book that feel like the X-Files. Uh, oh, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, but weird is sort of in the eye of the beholder. Okay, it's um, not weird in San Diego. Thank you. Go well, on. No further questions for no, the witness. <laughs> no, we, it, it was weird on the one hand, but one of the things that just sort of reached me about the Hale-Bopp thing mm. is um, is that it, it sort of uncovered how we all believe in some things that aren't to always verifiable. Yeah, we should you explain know? that Hale-Bopp was a comet in the 90s. Right. Uh, right. It was really pretty. I remember watching it from the Blue Ridge, as a matter of fact. It was a fantastic, yeah. it was the best comet of my lifetime, I think. But in San Diego, there was a... Yeah, there was, there was a group. I'll bet, even though you saw the Hale-Bopp comet, I'll bet you didn't see the invisible spaceship that was following I did not. the well, Hale-Bopp comet. Uh, well, hello, who's naive now? It's invisible. Well, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's the word invisible. Yeah. So, okay. So, so the story was there was, a, um, there was a group in San Diego in a very ritzy, sort of the Beverly Hills section of San Diego called Rancho Santa Fe. Mm. And uh, it was a group of men. Um, they were web designers and, you know, kind of tech IT guys 
but they were also part of a group called Heaven's Gate. And um, they had the, the belief that um, when the Hale-Bopp comet was visible, uh, which is only every, what, 75 years or yeah. something like that, maybe even longer, yeah. when it was visible, that was a signal to them that there was a, uh, an invisible spaceship that was going to be following um, the Hale-Bopp comet and that they needed to join that invisible spaceship. <clears throat> and the way that uh, you join the invisible spaceship is that you have to shed your earthly body. And so 39 of these men um, dressed uh, all the same, the black uh, jeans, the black Nike uh, tennis shoes that had never been worn before, covered themselves or were covered uh, by the last survivor um, with a purple shroud, uh, ate this tapioca pudding that had poison in it, and uh, laid down on their bunks and died. And all 39 of them died that particular night. And I worked on, uh, as part of the New York Times team, I was part of the coverage of that event and then for the several days after that. So describe when you actually sort of walk up to the scene. Uh, mm -hmm. Of course, <laughs> who could possibly imagine that there's been like a Jonestown level incident in Rancho Santa Fe. Um, so right. you couldn't, you wouldn't have, I, I'm not sure that you, if, if the guy had tipped you off at the doorway, I'm not sure you would have believed it immediately, but yeah, exactly. Uh, but exactly. Descri what, describe that. Well, the, the, the word was, and the national desk of the New York times called me and said, it sounded like a mass murder mm. had occurred at a house. And they just said, can you get to that house as soon as possible? So of course I did, and um, and I I started driving through the area, and Rancho Santa Fe, at least at that time, was the kind of area where you couldn't see any street signs. It was one of those if you didn't know where you were going, you probably didn't belong there, and um, and yet I saw a helicopter in the sky, mm. just hovering in one particular area, and so I figured. Um, all right, that must be the place. So I kept driving um, around on these streets uh, until I got to the vicinity of where that underneath that helicopter, and then saw all the police tape and everything. Um, so yeah, then I I had a uh, a press pass from the New York Times, and so I walked past the police line, and uh, walk and clearly everybody's attention was on this one huge mansion of a house. And so I just walked up to the house and there was a, um, a sheriff's deputy standing at the doorway, uh, like one of the guards at um, Buckingham Palace. He was just standing there staring straight ahead. I went up, I showed him my press pass. I asked him if, uh, if I could go inside. And he, not only did he say no, he said, and if you attempt to go inside, uh, you'll be arrested. So I thought, okay, something big is going on here. So I just said, uh, I have, uh, I heard that there was a mass murder. Uh, can you tell me if that's true? And he said, I cannot tell you anything. And um, he, again, he's just looking straight ahead. 
And so I asked him, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I realized that uh, after reading it, I realized this guy was traumatized. Like they all must have. I mean, it wasn't just that he had excellent discipline, like a Buckingham Palace guard. It was like he had just seen something that <laughs> that most of us don't want to see, um, I hopefully. I probably true. I, I think it's also possible, Al, that he had not seen it because oh. they still didn't know what had killed all these guys. Yeah. They didn't know if there was something in the ventilation system. Uh, okay, yes. So uh, my understanding was that only one or two sheriff's deputies had actually gone in, discovered the bodies, and then gone back out. And um, and those guys were, were taken immediately to a hospital because oh, they didn't okay. know so what he, was on them. He, he was, right? his, his, he was, something deeply freaky was going on and he, yeah, okay. Yes. Yeah. And it was his job to keep everybody out until the medical examiners were, could come and, and the other investigators mm -hmm. could come. So he, I tried every which way of just trying to get a piece of information from this guy. He was giving me nothing. And then I remembered that I knew a sheriff's deputy who lived, uh, who covered that area. And um, I just said, uh, where would I find? And I named that... Uh, deputy. And that's when I saw this guy flinch. Mm -hmm. um, he clearly gave me some visible facial reaction to my question as to where I would find that particular deputy. Mm -hmm. And um, and this was the best information I got from this guy. He said, you might want to try him at home, sir. <laughs> so I did. I called that guy at home and um and he said he had just gotten out of the hospital because they wanted to check him to see if there's anything in his skin, in his Jeez. lungs, you know. And I said, well, does that mean you've been in the house? And he said, I'm the one who discovered the bodies. So, yeah. So um, that's how that day began. It, it actually was the evening. So that's how that evening began for me. And then for several days, um, I, I just kept reporting on um, what had happened, and the the LA bureau from the from the New York Times got there later on, and yeah, so I just worked on that for the for a solid week. And that's your example of working on uh, deep background, right? Uh, yeah, it, yeah, exactly. Because that deputy um, who I called at home um, said that he would meet me the next morning at the uh, sheriff's uh, st department station. Mm. And so I, I drove, I didn't know what I was going to, I didn't really know what I was getting myself into. And I'm sure he didn't either. And um, so I, I pulled into the parking lot and I started walking toward the, the, um, the sheriff's department building. And I saw him come walking out and motion for me to walk the other direction. And uh, he was in his civilian clothes and um so he started telling me um, what the New York Times coverage got right and what they got wrong mm -hmm. from that morning, from that morning's or last night's postings, and um, and so I tried to get you know him to talk to me on the record and everything, and and he wouldn't do it because he was um, clearly told that you know you can't be talking to reporters. That's why we had to walk the other direction, mm. and we walked we walked away and and walked for a while. And then for the rest of the week, he was my guy that I could kind of check um, verifications, you know, uh, find out if we were on the right track. 
but I could never um, I could never actually quote him or even refer to him or let anybody know that I was dealing with this guy. It, that would have cost him his job. What did you know by the time you ended up talking with him that next morning? What had you been reporting? I'm curious how you uh, we had we had found out by then that it was this this group um, called Heaven's Gate. Mm-hmm. Who was able to verify who uh, was kind of in charge of it? A guy named Marshall Applewhite, yeah. and um, and that he was the last survivor, and then he was the last one to die. And um, so you knew by that, that time there were three there were thirty nine dead people in that house. We didn't know how many still. Okay. I, I I think, but but we had made the connection to this group called Heaven's Gate and to this cosmic thing of uh, joining this invisible spaceship. So we had, we had done that. Mm. How they died was still unknown. And, um, and what all was involved uh, in what they had been doing, where they were, um, uh, mm. where the survivors, because then there were sur- some survivors who didn't get the memo soon enough who had tried to come to that house in Rancho Santa Fe the next day or two and realized that their buddies were all gone. Wow. You know, so, yeah, so we, we knew a little bit. And so a lot of what I was doing was either trying to verify or put a human face on this. Mm-hmm. Were you, um, I, I'm just, this is, I'm not sure you discussed this, but there must've been a certain level of incredulity uh, oh, as, as you were talking to him and he was describing to you what he had seen and, and, yeah. and the rest of it. Cause this was the first time you knew about the, the black, the, the, the tennis shoes became very important to people. The right. uh, black jeans, Just the purple shrouds. I, yeah. Right. It, uh, it, was, it was so weird um, just visually when those photos started getting published. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was just so bizarre. And, and really, um, yeah, I, I, incredulity is a good word because um, my thinking was, really? So, <laughs> somebody, somebody thinks that this is what's going to happen? Um, Unlike many of my colleagues, not just in journalism, but in in the the greater San Diego area, just thought these people were nuts. But for whatever reason, Al, I I didn't go there. I didn't go to the point of of thinking, well, these are just crazy people. Mm. You know, good riddance. Um, there was just some. These were somebody's brothers and and sons, and uh, in some cases, fathers, and and it was just a bizarre. Um, it was just a bizarre thing. And so I didn't get to the point of these people are insane that many others did, but I didn't. Well, it kind of ruins the entire, you have no, after you've come to that conclusion, there are no more questions to ask. Right. Yeah. Yeah. These these people are nuts. So why would I even pursue this? Let's make a historical relationship. When people say, well, Hitler was nuts. There are no more questions to ask. If you yeah. say Stalin was just insane, he just liked killing people. Uh, right. There are no more questions to ask. And right. some of the most interesting questions are have yet to be asked if you just stop there. Yeah, no, that's a really, really good connection to the historical piece because um, something motivates this kind of behavior. Yeah. Something motivated Stalin. Something motivated Pol Pot. Something you know motivated... Um, uh, Heaven's Gate. Mm-hmm. And so what I became interested in was what was motivating these guys and what and what an interesting 
uh, kind of juxtaposition of these were really smart tech, uh, computer tech people. Mm-hmm. And um, so really, really smart people fell, uh, well, okay, that just gave away my, my own bias there, kind of fell for this narrative that there was a spaceship to join. Mm-hmm. And, and that juxtaposition of, of really smart people um, taking that kind of action, I found that both tragic and fascinating. Yeah, exactly. I, I, it's to expand on what we're saying. I, I think when people say so-and-so is nuts or that's just nuts, what that means is I don't understand. And Exactly. And that's exactly. the point, of course, where we should start asking more questions and trying yeah, to seek and, some understanding. And here's where it went for me um, in a, just a, a bizarre kind of way. Um, one, one night... I think it was just a couple of nights after this had happened. I was helping put my son to bed, and I think he was about 10 years old at the time. And I was just sitting on the edge of his bed, and, and you know, with, with both my kids, my wife and I would just like to have a little dialogue about what was the best part of your day, and, you know, and just kind of chat with them a little. And um, so he actually said, you know, at 10 years old, he's old enough to turn the tables. And he said, so what have you been doing all day? And so I said, well, I've been just working on a story. And um, and he knew he had heard something about it. And, he, and so he said something along the line of why did they die? And so I tried to explain to him, you know, that they believed that there was a spaceship. And, and he, I'll never forget this scene where, you know, it's dark in his room, but I could see that he just rolls over on his side, perches himself up on one elbow and looks at me with a very questioning kind of uh, uh, facial expression and says, how could anybody be so stupid? <laughs> and, and, and what pierced me was in that moment was, okay, so I'm a, a, a member of a, of a Christian fellowship in San Diego um, I actually believe in some stuff that is really, really hard to verify, mm-hmm. you know? So any, anybody who's a person of faith, because they're using the word faith, mm-hmm. they, they can't verify some of the wacky stuff they believe. And, and believe it or not, Al, this put me in my own kind of big existential funk for a long, long time. I can believe Eventually, it. Yeah. I, because I believe in some dumb stuff, mm. you know, from the perspective of, uh, of people who are not believers. Mm-hmm. So um, that's a that just actually gave me um, sort of a solidarity, maybe, or at least an empathy for these heaven gate heaven's gate folks to not just treat them as crazy people. Yeah, as one of my favorite. Um... Fictional detectives says, if you don't like the answers you're getting, check your premises. Yeah. Uh, and that's, this is kind of, we have to imagine, we have to keep on checking our presuppositions and, and premises as we go through asking questions about uh, either the current, current events or the past events. Um, yeah. 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 So uh, let's talk about asking about devising good questions. Uh, you, mm-hmm. have, you have a lovely side note where you say the Olympics drives you crazy. Um, oh, they do. I mean, they do. it was so I, delightful I, I because I shout myself hoarse. Why? At, uh, uh, because they ask such dumb questions. Yeah. How how many times? Are, 
So here's, this is it. I mean, just think about it. Now I'm getting all riled up just thinking about excellent, it right excellent. now. Excellent. Uh, audio gold. So, <laughs> so, somebody prepares maybe for four years, maybe longer for an event that maybe lasts a minute. It could be mm -hmm. uh, skiing, you know, the ski jumping. It could be some gymnastic thing or whatever. But they have been preparing every waking moment for years out of their lives, a major portion of their, of their life. And they perform either well or badly for a minute. And now it's all over. They either won or they didn't. And an interviewer says, how does it feel? That there is no way to articulate how that feels. Mm -hmm. So that ha there has to be a better question than that. But they must there have, surely someone at the network sent out a memo about that. And yet for all of my life, of watching the Olympics, people have been asking that question. I know, I know. So there, there. I've, I've come up with a few possible explanations okay. for why we keep going back to that well. Yeah. Um, one is it's a the, shallow uh, well. <laughs> the uh, that the commentator or the reporter is is just lazy. Mm. But I mean, think about it. you've had a long time to prepare for asking a good question for this athlete. You knew this moment was coming up. So maybe something out of their background or maybe the, a recovery from an injury or or whatever, or or what was, you know, how do you, do you put yourself in, in neutral and you just go through this? There are so many ways you could get at, how did you accomplish this phenomenal feat? Um, but a how do you feel just strikes me as either lazy or stupid or, and I just heard this recently because I was speaking uh, at a conference not too long ago, ranting on this very thing. <laughs> and, and, a, and a professional athlete, a guy who'd won the Stanley Cup as a, uh, as a professional hockey player in the NHL, who then became a commentator on television, came up to me afterwards and said, I can answer the question about why that question keeps getting asked. He said, because... Everybody uh, in the audience, everybody watching this still wants to know how you feel, even though that's an unanswerable question. Yeah, that's that's the question people want to know. I, I just don't think that's the way to ask it, regardless of what he just told me. That's not the way to ask it. Yeah, I, I can see the point, except that I think the audience has gotten so used to hearing that question being asked. I, I just can't, right. I, you know, I, what would you ask instead? Well, I, I would hope and taking my own lessons from the book, talk to me is I would hope that I was prepared enough mm -hmm. to know that this person had overcome something or, uh, somebody in her family or his family had really sacrificed to get you to this moment you know, so let's say it's somebody's mom had gotten up at three o'clock every morning and taken you to practice or or whatever, or had really sacrificed her own career or whatever for you to be able to accomplish this. I think I'd ask, a, say, what do you want to say to your mom right now? I think that would be a better way to express 
how the athlete feels. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That would be one way to do it. As someone who's really interested in in learning about things, I always am so irritated that uh, so much that we we're not learning when you're watching the Olympics and you're not exactly up on what's required with the say the high jump. Um, Yeah, that I want to learn more about training for the high jump. I want to learn more about things like that. But I've there are certain events say like the luge where uh, things are won in microseconds. And yeah, there's a yeah. certain there's a certain level of randomness. I mean, I think amongst the top the top three, it's like eh, we're not really sure uh, who really the person who got bronze could have won gold if if some <laughs> sort of if the, if the universe had resonated in a different direction at that when they went mm-hmm. down the thing. On the other hand, I would like someone to ask the marathon person what was the mile what mile yeah. did you, what was the most important mile for you. You know, yeah, what was yeah. I want to hear stuff like that. You know, when did yeah, it, when did you know you're going to do it? It might have been like the night before. I don't know, but you yeah, know. no, I, I I totally agree that 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 would give us insight into really what we're saying is into what it means to be a human being who has achieved something that we'll never achieve. But I I'm just going to get a glimpse into what it's like to be you. And so asking what mile or when did you know that, you know, you had to uh, that, that you were going to that you were actually going to win this thing or, you know, whatever. I think those are the things that reveal our shared humanity. But a how does it feel just invites a cliche and there's there's no real understanding uh, that happens then. Mm-hmm. So uh, we've talked on the podcast before about um, being discerning consumers of information in an age that has information overload. So right. um, and oftentimes uh, to be and to be honest, um, back in like the 70s or the 80s, uh, we just got the results of interviews um, without knowing how they were done. Uh, right. We heard about experts say or mm-hmm. we would watch uh, people would watch a Mike Wallace interview not knowing that there's actually a lot of artifice to a Mike Wallace interview that we didn't right. know he, about. He, yeah, he they may have edited in an answer to a different question. They got caught doing that a few times. Yeah, so what in uh, in order to be discerning consumers or connoisseurs of information really. Um what should we know when we watch an interview or read the results of an interview? Even if we're never going to actually do an interview with someone, which I, I agree with that, your editor, that we actually do do interviews. But we'll, we'll get to that in a sec. Yeah. I, I think with, uh, with the consumption of, uh, of news, information, those kinds of things, um, there are so many places now that are being way more transparent in how they gathered uh, the information uh, than uh, than maybe interviews were were done in the past, where there are a lot of places that will say if you want to read the entire interview or if you want to hear the entire interview, click here, and um, and then you can hear the raw, unedited. Hmm. If if you really if you really want, um, I, I there's another piece, and I I really get into this with my, my students uh, that I teach in journalism which is uh, skepticism is a virtue. And um, 
And whether you're a historian or a scientist or a journalist or just a citizen, if your government tells you something, uh, just because it was your government saying it doesn't mean it's true or it's real or that it's in your best interest. Mm -hmm. The skepticism should be, hey, I, we should check that out. Let, let me let me try to find a couple of other sources here that would verify that. My my observation is that because the news media have become so tribalized is that nobody's doing that additional uh, verification. So you get an Alex Jones in Infowars, for instance, who just says some stupid stuff um, just to p keep people fearful. Mm. I mean, that's his only purpose is to keep people fearful and make money off of that fear. Um, if someone were to listen to him say that the Sandy Hook school shooting never happened, I, I think it's your obligation to say, really? I, I wonder what some other sources might say here, rather than just believe that one uh, source of information. Mm -hmm. I think we'd all be a little better off if, uh, if, if we were a little more skeptical. Of everything? Or or what? What's the? Well, I, I I can't think of anything not to be skeptical about. I mean, the old Chicago uh, journalism rule, of course, this is a cliche by now. If your mother says she loves you, check it out. <laughs> you know, uh, I think that's not a bad rule when it comes to um, mothers. Clearly, to journalism, but especially when you're hearing from national leaders, yes, or or religious leaders, or you know, bosses or, or whatever. Or leaders of journalism. That's a, that's a very fair point. Um, uh, we should not be listening to one type of source. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you just leave yourself, if you want to go back to Stalin and Hitler and some of these others who, who could just dominate a narrative, um, I, think it, uh, I think it's your obligation to make sure that there are other narratives that you're listening to. Mm -hmm. Um let's talk about some bad interviews or awkward mm -hmm. interviews. I, I wish we were sophisticated enough to have the audio of some of them uh, because you have some, you have some a great, great thing in the book just to sell the book a little bit is that you seem you alternate uh, examples of interviews. I, I presume that you do this in class. Yeah. Uh -huh. and do you show them, you show them to people and do you, do you walk through them like step, yeah. step by step? Yeah. I might not, do the entire interview like I did the transcripts that are in that book, um, I, I might just show them um, uh, video clips that, you know, everything's on YouTube. So I might just show them video clips and say, okay, look at what happened here. This is where the wheels fell off of this interview is in this moment right here. Or this is where the interviewer was able to recover. And um, yeah, we actually deconstruct interviews that we listen to or that are on NPR or that have been on television or um, whatever. And that's very useful. Mm -hmm. what, so what's your favorite example of uh, an interview that we can learn something from? I mean, you've got several in the book. Which, which, which mm -hmm. one should we talk about? Well, I personally love the one with Chris Wallace and Bill Clinton. I have I have that open to that. I was just that's really weird that you did that. Okay, what what's it's, it's one of my it's one of my favorites for for this reason. Uh huh. You just think of Bill Clinton as this sort of bigger than life kind of person, um, for for good or bad reasons. Uh, he can just kind of uh, eat up um, 
all attention. And you've got a guy named, you've got a guy, Chris Wallace, whose father was Mike Wallace. So you know he's learned the ins and outs of, of good interviewing and aggressive interviewing more than most. But Chris he, he, Wallace he, also works for Fox News. Yeah. You know, so there's the, all of these really, really interesting dynamics going on. And he has his own interesting style, too, I think, uh, uh, of interviewing. He's yeah. not as aggressive as his father was. But um, but he can be a little more. Sometimes he can be pretty condescending. Yeah. Uh, uh, but what I loved about this interview is that um, one of the things I teach about interviewing is that in every interview, somebody is going to own it. Somebody's going to be in charge of that interview. And um, what I tell my students is it always has to be you. It hmm. always has to be the journalist who's in charge of that interview, because if you let your source take control of it, then that source can go in any direction or run out the clock or avoid answering difficult questions or whatever. So you're the one who has to keep things on task. So what I love about that Chris Wallace, Bill Clinton interview is that it is like a professional wrestling match of two bigger than life people who are trying to control the interview. Mm -hmm. So there's some really interesting, um, information that gets exchanged there. There's some really interesting humanity um, that's revealed in there. But what I love is that it is clearly somebody is saying, I want to control this interview. And the other person is saying, no, I want to control this interview. It's fascinating if you look at it through that prism. Let me ask, let me read one, one thing here that you have some interesting things to say about. Uh, Wallace says to Clinton in the course of this, this is in from when? 2004? It's, it's, it's when 2000, w. 2006, 2006 interview. Yeah, okay. Uh, Wallace says, when we announced that you were going to be on Fox News Sunday, I got a lot of email from viewers and I've got to say I was surprised. Most of them wanted me to ask you this question. Why didn't you do more to put bin Laden and Al Qaeda out of business when you were president? Now let's leave the content out of that, even the personalities. Uh, you, sure. you point out that that was, um, he's sort of backing into the question right. by right. attributing it to the viewers, right? Right, right, right. That's saying, that may, this may or may not be something I would have asked you, but viewers demand. But It's, it's such a great dodge in, in, in a way to not be a total accusation. Which people do all if people think about it, if they remove Chris Wallace and Bill Clinton and Al Qaeda, people do this all the time at work. They do. I hear they people do. say that you can be a little off putting and arrogant in your attitude. Yeah. Uh, you know, we do that all the time when yeah. we're engaged in the, the interviews of daily life or, or everyday right. conversation. It's, it's a way to kind of come in through the side door that says, you're really difficult to work with or you're kind of an arrogant SOB or whatever. Uh, and, and rather than say, I think you're difficult to work with, you come in this side door that say, people say this, and it's not a bad tactic as a, uh, from a, um, an interviewing perspective. It's, it's a way to keep it from becoming you accusing the other person of something, you know, mm -hmm. unfavorable. What else do you what else do you uh, think from this interview is, is worth looking at or, or or well clearly clearly Chris Wallace's preparation he knew what 
what the issues were. And he had he was well prepared before that interview began. When he saw that Clinton was doing what Clinton does, which is um, just give a really long or kind of go off the track or go way back in history, Wallace would rein it in. He mm -hmm. would pull it back into the present. And, um, and, and the other thing is the active listening that Wallace did. He wasn't so locked into his agenda of what he wanted to get at. If Clinton would raise something, he'd follow that for a little bit. So, for example— um, Clinton would say something like, uh, people thought I didn't do enough to get bin Laden. Uh, uh, Wallace just cut him off and said, do you think you did enough? That was, a, that was a, great, um, a great insertion to say, let's get this back to you, mm -hmm. not just to what do people think. Yeah. So I, it, he just showed tremendous skill. I thought in in uh, interviewing a very difficult person to interview, and you, you note that Clinton also is prepared. Um, he's, oh boy, is he ever! He's able to say, um, "Rupert Murdoch supports my work on climate change." Things like that. He <laughs> he's able to. He has a bunch of those yeah. sort of needles stored up as well. Yeah, yeah, which which he knows are just going to be really inflammatory to Fox News uh, uh, viewers and maybe. Uh, Wallace himself, at least, but, yeah. at least when he when he talks about his boss's boss, he's rocking him back, and at least has the opportunity to rock him back on his heels a little bit. Exactly, exactly. So yeah, Clinton Clinton was very skillful uh, in 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 being interviewed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it was just two heavyweight champions duking it out, and that's one of the reasons I love that interview. I also have to say, almost worth the price of the book is to have the transcript and your commentary on the absolutely horrible interview between Terry Gross and Gene Simmons of Kiss, which is yeah. right up there with like most awkward encounter. I mean, I felt so, it was like, it was like watching the British version of the office. That's how uncomfortable yeah. it is. Yeah. And it's actually worse. I didn't include the whole transcript. Yeah. Uh, I just included, um, I did include a lot of it, and then I, I did some summarizing um, in there, too, when it was just getting weirder and weirder. It's so and weird. I love Terry Gross. I think she's a superb interviewer. And and I have heard from critics of, of my including this in the book that it was unfair to take probably the worst interview this fabulous interviewer has ever done and put that in a book and say – this should this should not have happened the way it did. But it was you're right. It's awkward. It it was just horrifying. It actually. is a horrifying interview. Yeah, yeah. I I don't I don't ever I I went back and found some other some you know YouTube stuff of some of the other things. I did not look for this one. I did not look yeah. for a recording. I I don't I don't want to listen to it. Um, can we talk about? We're talking about interviewing. Um, we're not talking about conversations. You said just something interesting that um, you teach people, you try to own an interview. Um, yeah. It seems to me that might be an interesting distinction between interviews and conversations. I think trying to own a conversation, and, and Samuel Johnson, who I mentioned at the beginning, would disagree. Mm -hmm. He was trying mm -hmm. to win conversations. But, right. I think, but I think winning or owning conversations is a wrong way of going about it. Uh, nevertheless, um, I wish 
more conversations had more interesting questions. I, I completely agree. And um, so, so let me just go back to the owning it. Yeah. it that sounds, it sounds more aggressive maybe than, than I intend. It's just that if you're the one conducting the interview, you have an idea of the kinds of, <clears throat> excuse me, of the kinds of um, areas you want to get into. This mm -hmm. isn't just a free for all. This isn't just a what you have for lunch. This is um, this is let's get into some very specific areas that the public or some sort of an audience would be interested in knowing something about. So from that standpoint, you as the interviewer have to direct that. Mm -hmm. And if they get off track, either intentionally or unintentionally, it's your job as the interviewer to bring it back. And so that's what I mean by owning it. Okay, so I'm at a Thanksgiving, and it turns out that one of the people there is from, works for the ATF. And mm -hmm. so I'm all curious immediately, because I'm a curious person. Yeah. And I'm right. saying, so what is it with volunteer fire, depart fire uh, departments and uh, volunteer firefighters? Are they like always arsonists? Which is a terrible question to ask, but at it's, the same time, it's a tough first question. It was that was sure. like my first question out of the box because it's something I had seen in various places, you know, where right. volunteer firefighter. I'm not saying that happened in where I grew up, but it might have. A volunteer firefighter, you know, caught, you know, setting seventh blaze or something like that, right. you know, right. um, and that led to a really interesting conversation. Was that an interview or a conversation? Because I, I was trying to find things out. Um, you know, which, yeah, it's an interesting distinction. Um, I think if it were a conversation, you'd be saying, how was the traffic when you came in? Yeah, that or, sounds like a really boring conversation, Dean. I, I know, I know. But but if you're going to be a little more intentional and say, I, I want to know more about your job and I want to know more about what you think mm -hmm. uh, about a social issue like arson, mm -hmm. um, then I think you've gone... I don't. I don't know. It, I guess it depends on the semantics of it. I I like to think that you're still having a conversation, but it's a little more pointed because mm -hmm. because you, you aren't. This isn't just to get to know you. This is I'm interested in this topic, and you're in a unique position to answer this question. I I think so, most of our conversations would be more interesting if we were, had that attitude. I totally agree. I totally agree. So think of all the social events that you've had to go to and that I've had to go to where, you know, you start looking at your watch within the first 10 or 15 minutes. But if there was somebody there who was interesting that you could get into a, a conversation that would be a little more directed on a topic that would be unique to that person, mm. um, that the time flies by when that happens. Would you, um, there's an interesting thing. In an interview, uh, you would absolutely have to ask a man concerning himself, as Samuel Johnson put it, mm -hmm. um, even if it might lead to painful recollections, uh, things that sure. he might. In a conversation, I would hesitate to do that until like the third right. or fifth time. I mean, it, you know, I, I, and I'm probably not even going to do it with you right now. Um, uh, <laughs> I have no secrets. Yeah, uh -huh. it's uh, it's uh, it's all right. It's a small podcast, um, but you know, there's there, there is there is some sort of propriety that has to be followed, even in a conversation like this. That oh sure. That uh, I wouldn't. 
I wouldn't do it if it was an unrecorded and unbroadcast. I would certainly ask more pointed questions in an unrecorded uh, interview that I would say was going to write about. Yeah. I mean, where would the style section of the Washington Post be without such questions? Well, but but now we're back to a question I bring up in my book, which is, what is the purpose of this conversation? What is the purpose of this interview? Mm -hmm. And if the purpose is just as a get to know you, uh, are you a safe person, you know, for for me to socialize with? Mm -hmm. um, that's a different conversation from, um, do you have some information that's going to help me understand a topic or what it means to be a human being or... Um, can you explain something about current events or whatever? So I think the purpose of why you're talking to another human being um, has everything to do then with what are going to be the what's the nature of the questions you're going to be asking. I will say this: if you're recording it or not recording it, that does change the the conversation. You're huh. you're absolutely absolutely right. Um, because now, if it, since this is being recorded, mm -hmm. I'm aware that there is an audience beyond you and me. Mm -hmm. So I might choose my language um, more specifically mm -hmm. um, to sound a little bit more like an adult, um, as if if just you and I were sitting around having beers, hmm. right? So there and there is where McLuhan's the medium is the message uh, actually comes into play is and, and you actually probably witnessed this is um, if you see an event, let's say let's say a group is is on strike outside of a business and they're just sitting around in lawn chairs with signs just, you know, on the sidewalk. Mm -hmm. uh, or just leaning up against the chair, and then you show up as a reporter, suddenly these folks are up, they're standing, they're, they're walking in a, in a circle, they're chanting. And the only thing that changed there was the presence of uh, somebody recording them. It's true. Township committee meetings became a lot more formal when the 19-year-old the walked in. He, I, didn't, I didn't realize it until years later. Oh, okay, that's what was going on. You know, yeah, but it was, exactly. it was it, it, fortunately, it did not go to my head because I was too ignorant to to realize it, you know, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, but, but it's true that cameras, for instance, cameras in the courtroom when when yes. trials are uh, are televised. Yes, that's a that's a completely different experience. Yeah. Um, what uh, you, you've done this, you've done conversations for the uh, Point Loma's um, Writers Symposium by the Sea. Um, conversations right. with very interesting people. Uh, right. Those are interviews or conversations? I, I think they're interviews. We we build them as conversations because it, that's what it feels like. And that's the feel that I go for. But it, I have a structure to how that conversation is going to go. Mm -hmm. I, I, I treat it like a story. I treat, it has a, It's going to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And there's going to be... A, Probably for most of the writers that I interview, something in there that will kind of raise the drama uh, just a little bit, just like you would see in a story, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I, I see this more, I see it as an interview. I want it to feel like a conversation. 
But if you go back and watch any of these interviews, whether it's with Anne Lamott or whether it's Gay Talese or Kareem Abdul-Jabbar or Joyce Carol Oates, they're not asking me any questions. <laughs> it's true. Right? That, yeah. that's, why, that's why technically it's sort of an yeah. interview. Uh, and that's why this is an interview. I'm not really asking you any questions. Yeah, I have to admit this. I, I keep telling uh, guests that this is not an interview, but it's really an interview. I mean, you're not it asking. Is. Yeah. And in fact, I realized, oh, yeah, I just everything you just said, I've actually done. I actually had I began with Hale Bop, uh, yeah. you know, to get people interested. Also, to, also exactly. because I really wanted to find out some more stuff about it. Um, yeah. Because uh, this is my interview. Uh, yeah, and now, and I, ha- and I have a wait, I have waypoints as I, I always call them out. I, I always insist these aren't questions. I have many more questions, but I have things that I want to pass along in the course yeah. of our conversation. Right. Which is right. an actual so, interview. So, all right. Yeah. So technically what we're doing out is an interview. It's yeah, it's an interview. Um, what, uh, let's get back to let's the medium is the message. You, you brought that up. Um, this yeah. is a, Podcasting is a strange medium. Yeah. Uh, in many ways, it is talk radio. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've heard talk radio uh, hosts observe very, I think, sagely that um, there's a very strange relationship between the talk radio host and the listener. It's yeah. a, it's as if it's just the two of them. They've had a, a long relationship with each other. Right. Um, and yet radio uh, radio is still i think it's still a very hot medium in in many ways uh there are podcasts uh you know a lot of them produced by NPR but some some very good well produced podcasts that i almost find overproduced no one could accuse us well i mean with all due respect to John Ruddat our editor we try not to overproduce this sure um because i i had an NPR program director explain to me that he thought that overproducing podcasts actually was a mistake um, mm-hmm. that, uh, that it provided something. This was a very intimate. It's, we have headphones on listening to podcasts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's even more intimate than radio. Um, mm-hmm. what, uh, what tips would you give me or any other podcast person in terms of, of, of asking questions? Um, I yeah, just, well, most of your, your questions are very valid for me. Um, so thank you. But what 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 in particular about this? What for this medium? What should we be doing? Well, I think what separates podcasts from so many other um, kinds of media is the very thing you were bringing up about the relationship uh, with the the audience, and that is there's a there's sort of a rawness to it. There's an authenticity to it. That's why when it's overproduced it feels a little phony uh-huh. and um, it, it feels like, okay, we're doing a show and it's not like you're not doing a show. You are doing a show with, um, with yours, but you're letting people kind of eavesdrop on yeah. what feels like a conversation. It's really an interview, but you're letting people eavesdrop and, and overproducing would take out the flaws or take out, Maybe if you ask a dumb question, you haven't asked any yet today. Mm. But uh, if uh, if or if the the person says something that is just kind of awkward or weird, my feeling is good podcasts leave that in there mm-hmm. just to show that they're that this is an authentic 
um, raw uh, interaction. Mm -hmm. So that's that's where I think podcasts have this huge advantage. Yeah, um, this is episode one twenty seven or one twenty six, I think, by the time this drops, and. So far in 126 or 27 episodes, I've removed one flubbed answer. Oh, that's great. Good yeah, I, I mean, I think. I might have promised other people that I would, but I didn't. Uh, but I usually, uh, there's one person who flubbed an answer and felt really bad about it, and I did remove it. But otherwise, I, I find, I, I, I think it removes the... I hate using authenticity, but it, I want, it should sound, I think, in our ears, like you're, you, you are eavesdropping... Yeah. On, on two people having talking shop. Yeah. Um, there's an artifice though, of course, because I had, then I have to like make sure that it's not too shoppy, uh, you know, and with yeah. some historians, so I do have to ask them yeah. to clarify terms that I don't need to know the answer to. I don't need to have right. defined for me. So there's a, but that's right. But that's where you're being like, uh, like a, a reporter or a writer where you're, you're keeping your audience in mind. Mm -hmm. What do they already know? What do they need to know? I've got some reporter friends who, when they write a complicated story, like on finance, for yeah. instance, or economics or, or whatever, they actually put up a picture of their mom next to their computer screen. And so that physically they are telling their story to their mom. That's brilliant. And yeah, it is. And so that keeps the audience in mind if, if I mean, for a podcaster, I mean, th there are all sorts of ways now through uh, phones and, and, and everything where you can be listening to podcasts everywhere. But a lot of people still listen to podcasts in their cars. Yes. I know I do. Um, and uh, really, that audience is, as, as one professor told me when I was in journalism school, your audience is a person who's making a left turn in traffic. <laughs> Right. And yeah. so you've got to keep that person in mind. You can't make it so complicated and so deep that that they're either distracted from their driving or they're they've tuned you out because they're trying to make that left turn. Podcasters have to have a picture of who they're talking to mm -hmm. if this is going to work. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I, I do have a picture. I don't know if it's valid. I think I sent it to you in my my usual sort of uh, introductory email. I have a picture of my uh, my audience, which is probably adapted for marketers, um, but at least I have a I have an imaginary audience. Uh, I don't know if she or he is out there, but you know, we, I hope they are. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, my guest today has been Dean Nelson. He's author of Talk to Me: How to Ask Better Questions, Get Better Answers, and Interview Anyone Like a Pro. And it's not just for journalism majors. Dean, thanks so much for being part of Historically Thinking. My pleasure, and thanks for your good work, Al. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Ruddat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. 